Welcome to the Alleycast. We stand together, united as one. Forward on we go, facing friend and foe. We will know what it is. We have not time for that. If we make mistakes, we are lost. And welcome to the Alleycast with me, Steve O'Connor. So as the restrictions for the COVID-19 crisis are now being eased a little bit on the uh, exercise front, so you can go and exercise as much as you want really during the day, as long as you adhere to all the social distancing measures, of course. Um, Don't forget the challenges on the Alleycast page that keep you going. They're all virtual challenges. So there's the 10, 10, 10, so that's 10 miles, 10K, um, carrying 10 kilograms or 10 pounds and doing 10 body weight exercises at every mile or kilometre. Um, yeah, you can sign up for that. Um, and also, the 4448 is now back online, also. So that's four miles every four hours for 48 hours. Um, once you've done that, in fact, while you're doing it, post online, post on the Gontabin page, post on the Alleycast page, let everybody know you're doing it, chart your progress. And once it's done, drop me an email and I shall get the patch out to you in the post. So today's chat is with Patrick Sweeney. Now Patrick is an Olympian, he is an author, he is an adventurer and he is a bit of an authority on the neuroscience of fear. So that's what we chatted about today. So fear and uh, what it is, um, how you can harness it and use it as your fuel and, uh, and various other things. And we, you know, we looked at that in the context of um, just general everyday life, what we do as part of our crazy little hobby of, of tabbing and endurance running, and also um, how it affects um, your attitude during, during the current crisis or indeed any crisis. So it's a really great chat with him. Um, so I'll just hand straight over to that chat now, and I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I spent six years training for the Olympics in rowing, and yeah. um, uh, so I was second uh, uh, in the Olympic trials and raced the World Cup for, for three years, and uh, that was back in 96, and I wow. uh, haven't really rowed much since, but I'm, uh, I'm by myself, quarantined in Boston, and uh, the rowing show was, you know, uh, uh, safely next to the garage, and uh, finally decided about three weeks ago to break it out um so that's got brilliant yeah excellent so we're yeah so we're resurrecting some of the old skills <laughs> um, yeah look it's, it's it's great to speak to you um i first came across you after um I sort of heard about you through um rory over at one year no beer Ah, okay, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, I listened to the podcast you, you did over there, which was really, really good. So I'm, I'm just coming to the end of your book at the moment, which is fabulous. And there was a lot of things in that that sort of uh, rang true with me. And I think some things that I've, because um, I went through my own sort of brush with death a few years ago, and and some things that sort of really resonated with me that that I've I've, I've done without even thinking about it. But I'd like to sort of just delve back a little bit and just sort of um, and just sort of hear about your story and and, and where you all where, how how you arrived here really. Um, so I, I'd say uh, you know the the book came about because of such a massive transformation in my life. 
Mm. I was, uh, you know, I grew up uh, blue collar, Boston suburbs, you know, very working class. Um, my, none of my, you know, me, none of my parents or no one in my family went to college. Um, my dad was working quite a few jobs and we didn't have much money. And I was always searching for self-esteem. So, you know, there was a, a couple of bullies that picked on me and every time we moved, I'd, you know, end up getting in a fight. And uh, uh, so I, I was always looking for, uh, you know, for, for some sort of identity, for some courage. Um, and then when I was uh, about seven years old, I saw a plane crash uh, on, on TV in Boston. And that planted that fear frontier that I talk about in, in the book, Steve. And um, uh, I, I grew up, I was so uh, ashamed of being fearful of everything that I tried my best to put up this, uh, this, this facade, right? This mask of uh, a, a tough kid, right? Like yeah. I was, I was yeah. going to create this persona so people didn't know how much shame I was feeling inside and, and how I was really afraid of everything. Uh, I mean, I, I missed out on so much in high school and, and university because I was uh, afraid to fly. You know, and I, I just make up excuses and and you know say everything but the the truth to people, and then uh, you know I, I thought I could do it with sports and that would build me you know build courage and build confidence and it did but mostly just on the water you know and yeah. in, in a very specific area um, because that's where I was practicing it obviously, and then I thought well if I make a lot of money then that'll give me confidence and that'll give me courage so I set a goal after the Olympics, I set a goal for 40 by 40, make myself a net worth of $40 million by the time I'm 40 years old yeah. and screw everything else and everybody else. So, you know, relationships or, or, um, you know, health or any of that just out the window with that one focus. And, and, you know, I started doing well and, and working really hard and building some good businesses. And then one morning I woke up and had a terrible pain in my arm. And, uh, you know, I was, I was so afraid all the time, Steve, and I talked about this in the one year, no beer podcast yeah. quite a bit that, um, you know, when we're afraid the amygdala, that little thing in our, uh, base of our brain creates this fear cocktail, all these, all these different enzymes and hormones and everything else. So I had this constant state of cortisol just kind of squirting through my body all the time. And that's the stress hormone and it feels really bad. And so mm -hmm. the way I dealt with it was drinking. Yeah. You know, I drink yeah. seven or eight beers uh, on a weekday every day and, yeah. you know, feel guilty about it. The whole Irish Catholic thing. Right. <laughs> so I have to have to wake up in the morning and sweat it out. And, you know, when I went to the gym and woke up with that sore arm, I didn't know what it was. And uh, so I just, you know, ignored it. And then mm -hmm. the next day, same routine. Next day, got up again to work out and really started to hurt. And I, I should have gone to the doctor then but I was just too afraid to, right? Yeah. I was I was scared of what he was gonna tell me. I was afraid to to look at reality. And so the third day I didn't have any choice, I had to go. And um, he said, well, it looks like a staph infection, which we mm. see a lot with um, guys who go to the gym. We'll give you some antibiotics, take a blood test and the nurse will call you back in the afternoon. And the nurse didn't call me back. It was the doctor that called me back. And, uh, and that was the single phone call that changed my life. Yeah. So 24 hours later, I was in Johns Hopkins um, in the in the cancer, the oncology center. Wow. And they said, you know, uh, we're going to do everything we can, but we've never seen uh, leukemia like this. And, uh, you know, you want to make sure that your affairs in order. 
and mm. uh, you've had a chance to, you know, to, to clear the air with everybody that you know and, and say anything you need to say in your life. And, and you know, it was <laughs> at that point when I thought, holy wow. shit, I'm, yeah. I'm dying. Yeah, yeah. And uh, our one-year-old daughter was at her grandparents' house and our um and my wife was there and she just you know she didn't she's beside herself and mm. and you know in shock basically and she was six months pregnant yeah. and uh so it was at that point where i decided if i ever get out of there i'm going to overcome this fear of flying because i didn't want my daughter to have the memory of her father being the only guy who was too afraid to get on a plane and take her to disney world or mm. take her to paris you know, yeah, uh, yeah. whatever. So, not not to give away the ending, Steve, but I died. <laughs> I <died> right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I got out and I started taking flying lessons. Wow. Uh, once I, once my immune system built, you know, I had to quarantine for a little bit while my immune system built up, but um, uh, beat the leukemia mm. and uh, started taking flying lessons. Was terrified the first few flights, um, but you know, just, just kept using that fear as fuel. And uh, and kept going, and by the fourth or fifth flight, I fell in love with flying, wow. and uh, and it's one of the most fulfilling and and passionate interests that I have. And you know, I got my private pilot's license, I got mm. my instrument rating, I got my commercial rating, my seaplane rating, wow. and now I compete in competitive aerobatics, and I, I fly a stunt plane. Yeah, upside down, pulling five Gs, spinning towards the ground, and and just talking about that would have terrified me 15 years ago. And now it's one of the greatest sources of joy and happiness and fulfillment in my life. So I wondered, number one, how that could happen. And then when I started talking to some of the neuroscientists, you know, just casually, I actually met one out on a charity bicycle ride. Huh? Um, and, and we started talking, he said, come into the lab and went in, had coffee with him. And then, uh, uh, he said, oh, if you think this is interesting, you ought to go see Scott Orr over at mm. Harvard. He's doing this, this, and this. And I went and saw Scott, and we went out and had a beer, talked flying. And uh, <laughs> and he said, oh, you should go see Anna Byler over at MIT. <laughs> that. So this, this kind of steamrolled like that. And I was absolutely fascinated by all this research that they mm. were doing that didn't get out, hadn't yet gotten out to the public. And when it does get out to the public, it's this dry, you know, really yeah, difficult yeah. scientific terminology. And I thought, man, this is exactly what happened to me. And people could, if they knew this, if they had this information, they could reprogram their brain and they mm. could, they could go from being a wimp to being courageous without having to go through this, you know, this near death experience. And so that's how the book came about. Uh, 30, 32, 33 different neuroscientists uh, that I spent time with over the past six years, you know, working on the book and, and getting things done. And so uh, that's the that's the genesis. That's the, the story of how it all came about. Okay, so thinking about fear, obviously you saw this plane crash when you were really, really young. If, if I'm to see a plane crash on TV now, then, you know, I have to sort of understand that, you know, that something's gone wrong there. It's probably not going to generate that, that irrational fear of, of just flying. So, you know, I think there's, there's very few fears that we're actually born with. So how does that fear sort of develop from seeing something like that at a young age? Yeah, so, so what happens is uh, we make all of our decisions, well, sorry, not all of them, we make about 80% of our decisions, Steve, subconsciously. Mm. So we do, it, we do it without knowing it. And the way that we do it, the brain is a prediction engine. Mm. And that's actually why, you know, in the midst of the COVID uh, outbreak, 
people are have this this incredible uh, high anxiety. Mm. It's because our brain's a prediction engine, and we try to predict the outcome of a scenario that we're in the middle of. Yep. So when you wake up in the morning, you go out to to start your car, and your brain is thinking, okay, when I put the key in the ignition and turn it, there's a 90% chance it's going to start, and maybe there's an 8% chance that uh, the battery's dead, and maybe there's a 2% chance that a cat crawled up and chewed one of the wires in there. Yeah. And so those are the those are the way your brain predicts it. It does that based on something called prior beliefs. Mm. And your prior beliefs are are basically your past experiences in okay. life. Yep. And your brain is most plastic. It's it, there's something called neuroplasticity, which means it can change. And the brain is neuroplastic throughout its whole life, but but it's most changeable and most impressionable between the ages of about seven and 25 years old. Yeah. So uh, between seven, between the ages of, of about six and seven and puberty, it's super malleable. Mm. So anything that happens, any trauma, and when I say trauma, when you're a seven-year-old kid, trauma can be getting called up to the front of the <laughs> school, you know, front of the class, because yeah. the teacher asked you a question and you didn't know it. And that's the most traumatic thing that happens to you. Yeah. So that goes the these traumatic memories like when i was a kid they get planted in your internal system in your prior beliefs and we create defense mechanisms mm. to keep ourselves safe in that instance yep. so all of a sudden you know you have this this experience when you're a little kid and and i'm sure you can think of some that you had steve mm. but uh you know all your listeners can think back and it's the ones that you remember that are in our prior beliefs that are affecting our decision making and so yep. when you're an adult You've already got that database of prior beliefs populated. Hmm. Now, the really messed up thing here is we don't populate that database. Other people do. So we don't choose where we're born. We don't hmm. choose what language we speak. We don't choose where we go to school, how many brothers and sisters we have, the color of our skin, the language we talk. Any of that stuff is all chosen by someone else. And that becomes our reference point, right? Mm. It becomes our tribe, literally, because yeah, yeah. two million years ago, when you got separated from the, your tribe, it meant death, right? Because you wouldn't be able to survive without without the whole tribe to fight off the saber-toothed mm. tiger, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's why we have so many emotional fears, like uh, abandonment or or rejection from the tribe, right? Being rejected or or someone making fun of you or, or whatever. That's why those create such strong emotions because it all goes back to that amygdala, to our fear center that's running a 2 million year old piece of software that just wasn't designed for our modern day society. So mm -hmm. when you're young, no, that's where those impressions come from. They create those fear frontiers. We create defense mechanisms. And if we don't understand what those are, they can really hurt us later on in life. So would you say, um, obviously, with the, the, the COVID crisis going on at the minute, I'm seeing them, it's probably a bit too black and white, but I'm seeing two types of people, really. The people who are sort of looking at this time now and thinking this is a great opportunity to, to build something. Um, and we've got the people who are, who are sort of locking themselves indoors, wrapping themselves in cling film and, and, and they're scared to, to actually do anything. So so what what is sort of... The, what, what is dividing those two people? Is it just the fact that maybe the people who uh, are looking at it as an opportunity have been through a similar situation in the past and are now using that as a reference point as their operating system um, and the people who haven't aren't or you know what, what's actually going on there? I, I think, Steve, I would probably say it is uh, a level of comfort with chaos. Mm. So um, whenever whenever there's uncertainty in the brain, 
excuse me, that tends to create something called free energy, mm. which we feel the, the physical response to that is, is butterflies in the stomach or rapid heartbeat or sweaty palms or, you know, any, anything that you'd feel when you start to have this reaction, because that's all those chemicals being released in your body, mm. the, the cortisol I talked about, the yeah, stress yeah. hormone, for instance. So now when, when that happens, when we hear on the, on the news, you know, first that you wake up in the morning and you make a cup of coffee and turn on the radio and, and you hear another 8,000 deaths, you know, mm. uh, and all of a sudden you get that response. You think, okay, I'm, I'm under a threat here. Yeah. So if I'm under a threat, I'm gonna try and predict the outcome. Well, this is novel. This is new. Novel is just a fancy way of saying new and unknown, so the novel coronavirus. So because this is novel, I've got no point of reference in my prior beliefs to predict the outcome. Yeah. So I'm fucked. I'm, gonna, I'm about <laughs> to die. This is a terrible situation. And so what you do is you go back to what you know. Mm. And usually you become a more extreme version of what you were. So, okay. so all of our personalities have you know, really good sides, but we all have a dark side. Mm. And in a case of crisis, if you aren't used to dealing with that, that uncertainty and that feeling of chaos, then what you do is you adopt a threat mindset. Okay. And so that threat mindset that you're adopting is saying, I've got to go to what I know is a safe place. Mm. And for some people, a safe place might be sitting on the couch, uh, you know, talking about how bad the prime minister is or the president is or how bad, you know, going back to their yeah. more extreme version of themselves. It might be uh, getting as much alcohol or or drugs or online shopping or sex or whatever, whatever way you want to numb it out. That's probably the, the second category. But the third category is the people who are really going to excel when when they come out of this, whose oh. life is going to be absolutely amazing. Because instead of taking that threat mindset, they've adopted a challenge mindset. Yep. So they're saying, okay, look, I can't control this, but I can control how I react to it. Mm. So this is a challenge. This is a challenge in my life. And I'm going to look at it as a way of, of reinventing myself because, you know, all bets are off. It's okay to sit at home and have a dog walking behind you or a kid asking if you're almost done, can you make lunch or, you know, mm. things have changed and that's a super opportunity for me. And there's an interesting study, Steve, I saw um, from Bain and company, the consulting firm here in Boston. And they, they looked at uh, 700 companies through past crises and, yeah. and they tended to be, you know, big economic crises like uh, after 9-11, after the, the uh, recession in 2008, 2006 and that sort of thing. So they took 700 companies. What they saw was after the crisis in the top quartile of companies, 25% of the, the companies were new. Mm. And then yeah. what they saw in the bottom quartile, 20% of those top companies had moved down to the bottom. So what that tells me is within all this chaos and uncertainty and crisis, some companies are going to do spectacularly and, yeah. and catapult themselves up to the top of the industry. Other companies are going to do just what you say, and, and, and they're going to try and shrink back into a shell. And when they do, they're, they're basically just you know, burning their opportunities. They aren't adapting to the situation, and they end up down at the bottom. The same thing happens with individuals. Yeah. So if we're so if you got if you're one of those people who's adopting that threat mindset, is that an over an over reliance or, or or even just taking too much notice of the amygdala then and, and on what's going on there? And if so, then how do they counteract counteract that? 
you know, Stephen, I'd say it's it's not taking enough notice of the amygdala. Okay. So I think for a lot of people who are in that threat mindset, they don't realize that our our brains have evolved to evolve. So mm. so they've adapted over millennia to be adaptable, mm. and we can change our mindset. We can literally reprogram our mind, because what happens when the amygdala senses a threat? The amygdala was we were only designed to have one or two thing, uh, sensory inputs at a time. So if you go back, uh, you know, 100,000 years and mm. imagine us sitting in a field or around a campfire, uh, you know, in this idyllic place, that was the world back then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when one thing, just one thing imagine now, rustled in the trees, immediately it gets our attention and we think, okay, a threat. You make till it turns on and, and we get, you know, super strong. We get the, the, we get the fight, flight, or freeze response. Yeah. We, we think better and quicker. We're stronger. We can be faster and, and, and move better. And all of that happens because there was a rustling in the, in the you know, bushes. Yeah. And then when we realize, okay, it's not a tiger, it's not a snake, we shut off that amygdala and everything else is peaceful around us. Mm. Well, now fast forward uh, a million years, and now we've got uh, the news coming on here. We've got social media giving us this input. We've got, uh, you know, your kids saying this. We've got this happening with your boss. We have all these inputs. And unless you actively practice shutting off the amygdala, recognizing when it's turned on, then what's going to happen is it, you're just going to keep flowing that, that um, cortisol and those stress hormones, and you're going to maintain that threat mindset. So okay. the easiest... The, yeah. the most important thing people can do, uh, Steve, number one is what what neuroscientists refer to as taking agency. Mm. And that means taking control of your situation. So if you know that the brain was adapted to adapt, you know it has neuroplasticity at any age, then you know you can change it. So if you believe that, then you should ask yourself, what can I control? And the first thing I like to have people do is breathe. And in the book, in, in Fear is Fuel, as you know, Steve, I, I go through the, my platform based on neuroscience called the BASE methodology. Yep. And the B in the BASE methodology is breathe, exactly. Mm. And so what, what I encourage people to do is called a four by four. So mm. breathe in for a count of four, hold it for a count of four, breathe out for a count of four, hold it out for a count of four, breathe in for a count of four, and then you keep keep going around, and that's what they teach Navy SEALs in sniper training. They call it box breathing when you do it. And yogis have been doing it for thousands of years. In in you know, I've done uh, two dozen webinars since this COVID crisis began. And one of the things I tell people is, look, get a morning routine. That's the best thing you can do. Start to own your day first thing in the morning. I wake up. Thank God that I'm alive and above the dirt. That's the first thing. And you yep. can thank Allah, you can thank Buddha, you can thank the universe, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But just showing gratitude mm -hmm. immediately puts you in, a, in a, a happier state, releases a little bit of dopamine if you're grateful for your situation. No matter how bad it is, find something to be grateful for. So that's the first thing. The next thing I do is breathing exercises. So if you do, even it, and it only takes three or four minutes, right? It doesn't... You know, some people are intimidated by meditation or by uh, mindfulness because they don't want to sit on a, a cushion for an hour. You wake up, you, you're, you're thankful, you know, you, you recognize that three or four minutes of those four by fours and you're starting to wire a connection to your courage center. 
Mm. So we've got that fear center, the amygdala. Yep. Most people don't know we have the courage center, the SGACC or uh, <laughs> subgenial anterior cingulate cortex. Right. And so when you do that breathing, you start to create a connection, right? The neurons that you're firing mm. to that courage center, when they fire together, they end up wiring together. So yep. it becomes easier and easier. So then later in the day or you know, in a week or something like that, when you start to feel that threat and you start to think, oh, I'm going to lose my job. What am I going to do? If you do the four by four, when you feel that, when you first feel that, you're going to take control over your sympathetic nervous system again. So you're going to get back in charge and you'll be able to literally shut that amygdala off and okay. shut off the flow of all those stress hormones. Hmm. So just doing that, taking agency by, by learning the breathing and putting it into a daily routine makes a huge difference. I've, you know, I've gotten some great emails from people who said, look, I heard you on you know, this podcast or this webinar, started doing the breathing two weeks ago, and what a difference. My kids say I'm happier and you know, we're back to normal. And I came up with these three great ideas for a side hustle and I'm kicking ass just because of that, just because the breathing. Yeah, great. And so looking at the, the base system as well, I know just the second one is, is to assess the situation. And it's quite funny that you mentioned the, the, the Navy SEALs and the box breathing there. Because I was listening to um, one of Jocko Willink's books the other day, and he was talking about yeah. his situation whereby he's, you know, when he went into sort of one of the first situations where he realized he could maybe sort of advance and take control, he disassociated, took a step back and looked at what was going on around him. And that, that's similar to what we're talking about in the assessment stage, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Steve. It's um, you know one of the great analogies. My uh, my two sons like to play on the Xbox, and there's a Formula One driving game you can play, and uh, and and there's two ways you can play it. You can play sitting behind the wheel, as mm -hmm. if you're actually driving in the car, looking out, and you you see the car in front of you, and you've got the driver's view, or you can be up in a helicopter, right, looking down and see all the cars and yep. see the turns that are upcoming and see you know, see the, the broader picture. So I use that analogy a lot. When when you're behind the wheel, and, and we've all done it. I mean, particularly if you've ever driven in Boston, you're, you're driving along, some little old lady swerves in from the, the opposite lane. And, and you know, you, you give her the finger like that as, you know, and start screaming at her and get all upset. And if you were that guy up in the helicopter and you look down and you saw yourself, you know, flipping somebody, some little old like what is that fool doing to that poor grandmother because you know she, she can't even see and and he's getting upset about it and so if you if you can step back it's tough to do but if you can not be the driver but instead you know be the be the filmer be the producer or the director up in the in the scene and you get a good look at everything then that detaches you from the immediate threat and that's a, the real key part of the assess uh, of the of the A from the, the base system is stepping back to assess that situation, because now you're not being directly threatened by what's in front of you, by what's what's directly in your screen. You're stepping back and you're looking and you're able to say, OK, how much of a threat is this really? What are what are the real likelihoods of, of my life being in danger right now? And, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it's pretty slim. Mm. And once you recognize that, you can start to step through and look at proactive decisions instead of what the amygdala always wants you to do is reactive, right? Mm. It's always a fight, flight, or freeze response. And it's always a reaction. And most of the time we regret it. And that's yeah. why, you know, great leaders like Thomas Jefferson said, when you're, when you're angry, count to 10. And if yep. you're really angry, count to 100, right? <laughs> because yeah. what you're trying to do is detach yourself from the situation so you don't do a reactive uh, move.
Yeah, and I found the the third part of the bass system. That was something that really sort of um, struck a chord with me because um, after after I came out of hospital, after I recovered from 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 my health scare, and that was there. Um, my wife said to me, "I was coming up to her birthday." She's like, "What do you want for your birthday?" I said, "Like, I'll find something." And I thought, "I want to jump out of a plane." So I, I researched it, and I could either jump out and do a tandem jump with somebody else, or at yep. the same place, I realised I could do a static line jump where within eight hours I could learn to jump out of a plane by myself. So I thought, "I'm going to yep. do that." So I did that, and the first time I went up and did that, I was absolutely terrified. Um, and the second, which are you going to be? The second time I went up, I still felt terrified. But something that I remember, I was, I was thinking back to sort of Tony Robbins and his old mood follows action thing. So I sat on the back of that plane on, on, on my backside and put a big smile on my face as we were circling around and other people were jumping out. And I didn't feel half as scared when I jumped out that time. And, and that's the third part of the base system, isn't it? A smile. <laughs> Yeah, so so smile and, and shift your eyes, and it's it's not just uh, you know the old adage grin and bear it, mm. but there's great science behind it, Steve. So what what people have um, it was Emory University that did this terrific study. They wanted to to prove uh, if whether or not that was really a, a strong strategy. Mm. So they took a couple hundred um, participants and they split them in half. So they had a control group and the test group. And they showed them uh, horror movies and, and really scary things as they monitored their brain um, act activity and their cortisol level, the stress mm. hormone in their body. Then they took the other half and they said, they, they, they thought from a strategic perspective, we don't want to tell them to smile because they might think of something good. They might think of something happy. Yeah. So that'll skew the results. Mm. So what they did was they gave them a chopstick and they had them held the, hold the chopstick in their teeth just so they'd flex the 42 muscles that are in your face. Yeah. And what they found is the group that had the chopstick in their teeth had an 80% reduction in cortisol. Mm. So just smiling has a direct connection somehow to that sympathetic nerve system again, to the, to the, the fight, flight, or freeze response. So it's, it's one thing that if you smile or if you do that, that controlled breathing exercise, your brain says, we must not be under threat because when we're under threat, we breathe, <laughs> we, we breathe that quick static. And, and when we're under threat, we definitely don't smile. So, so somehow or another, that's a signal. And the, the way, in, and this is quite complex neuroscience, but the way that our brain waves work, literally the wireless signals in our brain mm. is either bottom up or top down. And top down is is information coming in, something we see, something we feel. Bottom up is uh, our internal interpretations of things. So if we're smiling, we, our, the part of our brain doesn't understand why we're smiling. They just know that's a bottom up signal. Yep. And they say, okay, well, must not be a threat there. And uh -huh. so there's great neuroscience behind this technique, you know, the, the base platform. And most people, you know, don't understand when, when, you know, someone tells them in Brennan Barrett, that's one of those adages that proved out really well in the, in the science community. Okay. So what does, what's the, the E in the base? Well, so the S there's another S and, uh, you know, your readers, your, uh, sorry, your fans can read about yeah. it in the book in, in fear is fuel. Uh, the other, the, uh, other S I'll tell you is, uh, has to do with shifting the eyes, yep. but the E is probably the most impactful one of the base methodology 
and that's to eliminate shortcuts or more specifically from a, a neuroscience perspective, it's to eliminate valence. Mm. And, and valence is literally, and this was only proved in uh, 2016, so it was only four years ago that we knew this to be factual. And what happens is our brain makes up only about 3% of our, our body, mm. but it uses 20% of our body's energy. Okay. So it's an incredibly inefficient machine. So it tries to be as efficient as poss possible. And the, one of the ways we do that is by creating shortcuts. And the, the shortcuts are all based on our subconscious prior beliefs. So when we see someone who looks different from our tribe, we immediately route that information to the right side of our brain. So when okay. something's bad, we, write, we route it to the right hemisphere to deal with it. Just that half of the brain. Mm. When we see someone uh, that we like, we route it to the left side of our brain. So mm. we either want to, our brain is always judging, do we want to mate with someone or do we want to kill them? Yeah. <laughs> and that's sort of a, it tries to put into, into those two quick buckets, those two yeah. shortcuts. So, you know, for instance, if, if you're like me and you come from a, a pretty traditional conservative uh, blue collar Boston family, you know, with most of my relatives are either cops or priests, mm. then, uh, you know, one of the things that if I walk into a Starbucks uh, or, you know, some fancy coffee shop, and I see a guy behind the counter and he looks like he's the victim of a drive-by piercing, right? Like he's got, <laughs> he's got yeah. you know, things in his nose and his eyelids and everything else. My initial reaction is, is gonna be a shortcut to the bad side and think, God, what a freak, look at that idiot, yeah. right? Because it's my, half of my brain is judging whether or not he's in my tribe. And because he's not in my tribe, my subconscious sees a threat and thinks this guy might try to kill me. And so I'm going to beat him to it. I'm going to be respond, respond quicker. So we have these shortcuts that are going on all the time in our brain. Now, if we were to stop, and at that moment, we, we walk into a Starbucks and we see someone different than us, we were to stop and say, what a freak, and realize, okay, I just made a judgment. Hmm. I'm going to take agency. I'm going to take control over how my brain works. And I'm going to change my future past. So yep. if you think that all of our past is why we're making 80% of our decisions, that subconscious, if you make a decision now, you're going to change your future past. So then the next time this happens, you're going to think differently. Mm. So if, if you find yourself making a judgment and you say stop, and then you try and think about how the opposite of your story could be true, what can you find good about this guy? Well, you know, he must have great self-confidence because he doesn't care what you know, people think about him. He must have a super high pain threshold because I could never put one of those little things in my eyelid like that. So, yeah. so you know, and then when you go and engage with them, now you've got a whole different demeanor. You've got an appreciation for him. But literally from a scientific perspective, Steve, you, you light up the other half of your brain. Hmm. So you're literally using twice your brain power when you eliminate those shortcuts. And, and that makes you smarter. And yes. then it's populating your belief with more things. It's going to make you more creative, more innovative. So eliminating those shortcuts is basically uh, another way of saying replacing judgment with curiosity. Mm. 
So these techniques, I mean, I can see you sat there and you're sporting your Leadville top, which I'm yeah, really, really impressed yeah. with. There. Um, most most of the listeners that are of the of the Alleycast are all uh, involved in sort of, some sort of adventure sports or endurance sports, um, and we're, we're closely tied into um, um, uh, two, two groups in the UK called Gone Tabin and the other ones Avalanche Endurance Events, and they are special forces. Um, events company pretty similar to sort of Mark Devine Seal Fit and things like that so they put on events throughout the UK can you use these sort of techniques to to improve your performance or to or to um, you know to, to drive you to do more within these events and, and, and take more risks mainly yeah absolutely and and Mark Devine's a good friend of mine mm. uh, and, and uh, you know I've he and I get together, you know, usually two or three times a year mm. to have some fun and, and yeah. do interesting stuff. Uh, and I've worked with a lot of Navy SEALs as well. Mm. And there's a couple things that, that you can do to really improve your performance. And, and this is some of the stuff I used when I was training for the Olympics as well. But, you know, first and foremost is uh, visualization, right? Mm. Because when, when we create a memory in our mind, two, two things happen, Steve. We have what, what's called an episodic memory, um, mm. and, and that episodic memory is just the facts. Mm. So you might say, uh, you know, to, to use an example from a, uh, the Navy SEAL training, what's, what's called BUDS, uh, Basic Underwater Demolition School, the, the, uh, the obstacle course is the very first and, and hardest challenge that people face. And a lot of it's mental because you're, you're 30, you know, 30, 40 feet up in the air, 10 meters up in the air on a wall with no safety nets, nothing, you know, just mm. on the beach. And it's, it's an easy climb if it was 10 feet down on the ground, right? <laughs> but, but it's not. So it's the mental aspect. And if someone falls and hurts themselves, that's their, that's their point of reference, mm. right? Is uh, the, the episodic memory might be uh, five o'clock in the morning, it's in the dark. I tried the first time to get over the wall. I fell and I sprained my ankle. Mm. And those are the facts. The emotional memory, we, we do these two memories at the same time in, in any time in our life, any time during the day, we create a memory. One's episodic, one's emotional. And so that they're stored in two different places, but the emotional memory becomes, okay, um, now that's painful, that's difficult, uh, everyone laughed at me, uh, I'm not going to make it. And those are the emotional memories associated with it. Yeah. The same is also true of PTSD, right? Mm. You, have, you have a trigger. It might be a, a helicopter, the sound of a helicopter rotor in the distance. And then you trigger death. You know, it was my best friend. I saw his guts shot out. Now, literally, one thing you can do is uh, when you recall those memories, uh, any, any memory, if you recall it, you literally have just 10 minutes to change the emotional memory associated with that semantic memory, okay. with, that, with the episodic memory. Mm -hmm. So we can never erase the facts. Those are, those are always stored away. But we can always change the emotional memory that's associated with it. And so that's, that's one of the keys to treating PTSD is making mm. sure that they're recalling the memories and then doing uh, whatever kind of therapy they're doing within that 10-minute window yeah. uh, when, when, when it's uh, plastic, when it's malleable, when you can change the emotional. So one of the key things to do is visualization. And visualization is simply getting yourself in a relaxed state. And I talked through a lot of details about uh, what they taught me at the Olympic Training Center that, that literally ended up helping save my life when I was at Johns Hopkins because I was visualizing every waking moment. I was visualizing these warrior cells coming out of my sternum. 
and going out and blasting all the all the rogue T cells that were causing the leukemia, like you know, like I was playing Call of Duty inside my body, <laughs> and uh, and so when you're when you get in a relaxed state and you start thinking about whatever competition you're doing, a lot of people and a, a lot of sort of uh, you know peak performance gurus will tell you imagine the perfect race. You know, imagine yeah. Steve, you're, you're going over it. You feel light, you feel, you know, like, like you're flying and it's easy and it's effortless. Yeah. And that is complete bullshit. Okay. <laughs> so what you, what you're, what you want to do is once you get to the point where you can do that and you can get relaxed enough to start to kind of play a movie in your mind's eye, then what you want to, you want to start to create memories of things that are going wrong. So as you get in this state and you start the visualization, if you can imagine the course and then imagine getting a horrible blister and you know, you just blood coming out of your, the side of your foot. And then the key thing is see how you react to that. Mm. So now what you're doing is you're creating a prior belief. So this is going to create a memory as if it really happened. It won't be as strong because you don't have the emotional, the same emotional and, and physical inputs. But if you can try to imagine the sights and the smells and the sounds, then it's going to be it, your your brain will look at it as as a legitimate event that actually happened. Yeah. So now if you imagine the worst case scenario and you imagine all these bad things happening, see how you respond, see how you react, get a, get back up there, you know, start to move forward and then get through that challenge. Then what happens is nothing can surprise you. So as, as you go through the race, as you start the day, you see yourself cramping in the stomach because you had too much sugar or you see that horrible blister or you see yourself, you know, tripping over a rock or what have you. Any, any you know, any, any good endurance athlete is, has had challenges in, in any race. And then if you can just visualize yourself, bouncing back from that, whatever happened, and then doing, you know, 15 minutes. I'm going to run, I'm going to climb, I'm going to do whatever I, am, what I have to do for the next 15 minutes. Because anyone can do anything for 15 mm. minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. And and if you're just sort of focusing on those little chunks, then that's a great way to to make sure that your brain is prepped for any eventuality. And, and you know, on some of the world records that I set, uh, you know, I was, I, I got lost in the middle of Alaska and, and you know, I'm in, I'm at the top of Kilimanjaro and our our whole film crew, you know, had uh, succumbed to altitude sickness because we went up so quickly and, you know, all, all these crazy things that eventually happen in any adventure. And if you, you get to the point where you're comfortable with that chaos, you're comfortable with that ambiguity, then, you know, you, you really start to learn how to kick ass. So when you look at those world records that you've set, which one of those would you say created the most fear initially when you when you looked at it? Um. There, the the two that stand out um, were, and, and this wasn't a world record. It was just a a, a crazy adventure race called the Iditarod Trail Invitational. Yeah, yeah. So uh, every February, it's the week before the dogs run the Iditarod course from um, Anchorage to McGrath, and um, uh, it was minus thirty five when when we set out. Uh, it's a race. So they have uh, 40 to, to 50 people that they invite. They usually have about 500 that apply, but excuse me, there's no GPS and no safety stuff. Mm. So you, you have to prove that, uh, you know, you know how to handle the yeah. elements and that sort of thing. And um, 
And so uh, because it's a race, you know, most people who are who are, you know, sort of top 20 are, are pushing themselves. Mm. And uh, and I was no different. And I had slept uh, in the four days, the first four days of the race. I slept an hour and a half each night. Wow. So I had yeah. a total of six hours of sleep in four days and on the bike the rest of the time. So, yeah. you know, literally about uh, 22 hours a day when I wasn't, you know, trying to make food or, or navigating or what have you. And uh, I was at the point, and, and I'm trying to follow snowmobile tracks, uh, and I just kept Orion, the constellation on my left, because that was always in the southern sky, and I knew I'd be heading west if I did that. And I got to a point where there was a sign on a tree, and there's a couple of different snowmobile tracks, and the sign said McGrath uh, 10 miles or McGrath 8 miles. I can't remember what it was. Hmm. And I was doing about 3 miles or 4 miles an hour on, on the bike at this <laughs> yeah. time. And, and uh and so I said, okay, two hours to go, and this thing is over. Giddy up. I got rid of all my food. I got rid of my um, fuel for my stove. I lightened up, and, and I said, you know, I'm going to uh, make this 10 miles in an hour and a half, and I'm just going to, you know, get this thing over with. And, uh, and I think I was in ninth place or something at the time. And so I was, uh, you know, I was pretty psyched about a top 10 finish. And, uh, uh, and I started going along, and it's starting to get dark. And then it starts to snow. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, I could really be screwed because if it snows enough to cover up the snowmobile tracks, then I'll have no idea where I'm going. Hmm. And so uh, after about an hour and a half, I saw the green flashing beacon of an airport. So I knew McGrath had an airport. So I thought, okay, well, McGrath's up in the distance. I saw that on the horizon. And then I saw the beacon on my right. And then I saw the beacon on my left. And then, you know, so I, clearly I'm going around in circles or, or at least going a circuitous route. And now there is probably two or three inches of snow on the ground. Hmm. And I'm thinking if I have to wait till light, I'm, I'm going to have to end up sleeping at night. I'm going to give up eight hours just to just because I can't navigate in the dark without a trail to follow and um, uh, and, and no stars to see. Right. Because it's snowing. And so uh, it starts it, it it starts coming down even heavier. I go around a corner, and I saw a paw print that was the size of my hand. And I got big hands, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, "Son of a bitch!" <laughs> I, I, that was that was probably one of the most scared moments of of my life. And I'm thinking, you know, if I see a bunch of those paw prints, that means there's a whole pack of wolves. Mm. It's not just one wolf that happened to be going by here and I'm going to look like a giant burrito in my sleeping bag. If, <laughs> if that's the case, and that was, that was probably the scariest, scariest. The other, uh, that was pretty scary was, uh, I'm the only one to ever go up Mount Elbrus, which is Europe's highest mountain uh, mm. with a bike and then back down. And I had gotten up to, uh, maybe 50 meters from the summit and, uh, it was a, just a tremendous whiteout. So I actually took off my pack which had the bike on it just so I could go to the summit, record it, and then, and then, you know, come back down. Mm. So I got up to the summit and I started coming back and I couldn't find the bike. Yeah. So, wow. uh, in, in one edge of Elbrus is, you know, a, a 4,000 foot, you know, thousand meter, mm. uh, straight down drop. And, uh, and, and so, so I'm wandering around for, 
maybe five or six minutes, but it seemed like about two hours. <laughs> and uh, I finally found the bike and these little flags that uh, that were in the snow that led the way up. So uh, so those those are probably two of the highlights, I would say, where I definitely had to use some furious fuel. So so what's next for you then, Patrick? Uh, obviously, we're all there. I think we're just waiting to see what happens over the next few weeks in the UK as regards our sort of lockdown and quarantine. Um, so I'm not sure what's happening with, with you at the moment, but, but what have you got planned? Well, so, you, you know, Steve, I had a couple of big adventures planned for the spring that, that sadly have been canceled. Mm. Um, and so my next, uh, you know, my next challenge, you mentioned the Leadville jacket that I've got on. Yep. Uh, this will be number 10 for me. So I'll get my, my thousand mile buckle. Uh, Excellent. You know, right now, uh, Lifetime, a, a good friend of mine is the, the runs Lifetime, uh, Baram Akbari, and he said, we're going to keep it going. We're going to, mm. we're going to, you know, do the race unless things get really out of hand between now and then. And yeah. they said that they'd decide uh, first week of July for sure, because the race is first week of August. So I've got the bike, the bike coming up and uh, you know, I've got uh, a small training wall in my, in my um, uh, garage. So, you know, my goal is to climb a, a 7B uh, this year as a project. Mm-hmm. So, uh, or, or about a, uh, 512C uh, for those in the United States. Yeah. And so uh, so I'll find a nice place, hopefully, you know, Finale Italy or Majorca or something like that with a good climb for it. Brilliant. Okay. So um, so if, if people want to find out more about you and, and find out about the book, where can, where can they get that from and how can they find out more? Sure. PJSweeney.com is yep. the website and you can go to PJ Sweeney and it's got, uh, I've got, you know, a blog with lots of new information there. Uh, I got a test, a little quiz going up actually on Monday that you yep. can test your fear okay, and cool. find out where your strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, and then, of course, uh, all of you can follow me right now on Instagram at the Fear Guru. And um, uh, also the book Fear is Fuel is available anywhere. So uh, Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Noble and Kindle and that sort of thing. Brilliant! Look, congratulations on the book. It is a, a super friendly read to read. It's not um, it's not loads of jargon that people aren't going to understand. That's uh, you know, I, I've, I'm really enjoying it. So just about to finish that now. Um, it's been great to speak to you. Uh, if you're ever in the UK, look me up. We can go out for a run or a bike ride and what have you. I'd really love to spend time with you. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time, Patrick. Really, really appreciate it. Steve, thanks a million, and thank everybody for tuning in and listening to it. I really appreciate it, and, and go out there and scare yourself every day. Use that furious fuel. So there we have it, Patrick Sweeney. Uh, great chat, loads of information in there. His book is fantastic, so if you want to get yourselves on Amazon, uh, or wherever you get your books from and, and grab that book, then you know that will give you a lot more information. Like I said in the podcast, it is a really sort of a good, informative and not too complicated read. So you can work your way through that and uh, put some of those techniques into progress. Um, so once again, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the challenges all explained on the Alicast page at alicast.org. Don't forget also that we now have the Avalanche Endurance Events Virtual Challenges with uh, last week's being the Battle of for the Golden Road, which I took part in, which was 14.5k, carrying 10 kilograms um, in, in boots and trousers. And yeah, that was a, a really, a really uh, good challenge. And they've got um, more coming up over the next few weeks. Avalanche Endurance Events will also um, be making an announcement on this year's Fan Dance 
on the 8th of June so that is whether it will go ahead in July or whether it's going to be postponed to a later date so keep your eyes peeled on the 8th of June and uh, we'll have a little bit more information as regards that so thank you very much for listening to the Alleycast once again another episode coming up in a couple of weeks time and remember always a little further we stand together united as one forward on we go facing friend and foe we will know what it is we have not time for that if we make mistakes we are lost <laughs>